All right, you ready for this? Ready. This is Tom Salami of Device Talks. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. So this will be sort of a replay, sort of a preview podcast. We have Device Talks West coming up this Wednesday at the Santa Clara Convention Center. I sincerely hope you'll be there. I would love to meet each and any one, each and every one of you. And if you are there, please make sure you say hello. It would be great to uh, to connect. So if you have not yet registered, you can, of course, go to devicetalks.com or west.devicetalks.com. If you want to skip a step, you can register right there. Use the code DTW25. So that stands for Device Talks West or Device Talks Weekly. DTW25, and you'll save 25% off the full price, which I think works out to the full price is, full price is $695. Discount brings it down to like 5.30 or something. Uh, we'll also have a cocktail reception the night before. So that would be on the 17th. You can uh, attend that as well. That's an extra $25, but it should be well attended. Uh, we're inviting, of course, uh, VIPs and speakers. So lots of great opportunities to connect. Shifa Med will be sponsoring a cocktail reception uh, after day one on site at the Santa Clara Convention Center. So very grateful for their support. And of course, we'll have many great sponsors up on stage sharing important lessons down on our exhibit partnering floor, uh, be, uh, making themselves available for questions, sharing their stories and uh, helping you build your devices better. So it's going to be two great days of uh, discussions, of connections, of just enjoying the industry that we live in. So once again, I hope you'll join us. Go to devicetalks.com. I'll be conducting four interviews as well as uh, leading some panel discussions as well. I'll open up with uh, my interview with Julie Tyler, Senior Vice President of Abbott. She also leads Abbott's vascular business. We'll talk about how that business is growing. That's the start of day one. Uh, The end of day one, I'll interview Fred Kasravi. He is co-founder and CEO of Imperative Care and Imperative Care course, is a neurovascular vascular business, but they're really adopting uh, a, a an approach to treating patients even beyond device intervention. And uh, I had a prep call with Fred and very inspiring. Uh, I'm really, really looking forward to that conversation. I think it's uh, one of these next level uh, moments for MedTech. And um, again, it's a, it's a great story. Imperative Care's executives will be pre- pre- uh, presenting earlier in the day as well. Uh, a little more on their uh, on their approach, so uh, you can uh, you can certainly attend both of those if you're at Device Talks West. We'll open up day two with my interview with Dave Rosa. He's president of Intuitive, which me, leads me to my uh, the, the interview we're including today. We, I had the opportunity to interview Dave earlier this year for Intuitive Talks. I'm not big on doing replays. I try not to do them very often. But uh, I wanted to share this one because it's going to get into his background and it's going to get into uh, sort of where he was at the time in, in Intuitive's history at the time. I only have 30 minutes with him on uh, Thursday. 
So I want to use them well. So I'll probably spend less time talking about his background, more time talking about where Intuitive is headed. So you've got like kind of a bit of a primer, a bit of a backgrounder on Dave Rosa on today's podcast. So enjoy that. And finally, I'll end the day talking with, uh, well, my final interview of the second day will be with Hani Abuhalka. He's a company group chairman of digital and robotics at Johnson & Johnson MedTech. And we'll talk about how j j is approaching both digital surgery and surgical robotics. So uh, great conversation there as well. Uh, we'll actually end, end the day with a live Device Talks weekly show. We'll uh, have Chris Newmarker up on stage. Uh, Kayleen Brown will will pop up. We'll have others as well. Joe Mullings will, will be on hand to provide sort of his overview of what he saw at the show and uh, what he's seeing in MedTech. So uh, I'm sure we'll find some others as well. And and we'd love to invite audience participation. So honestly, if you ever uh, just sort of wanted to be part of the podcast, wanted to see what happens, we'd love to have you there. That takes place the uh, around 4.15, I believe, on day two, which is October 19th. So lots going on at Device Talks West. Go to devicetalks.com or west.com west.devicetalks.com to review the agenda and the speaker list. And uh, please uh, make an effort to to come out. We'd love to see you there. Uh, If you want to reach out to me via DM, um, love to, you know, help you find a way to get there and uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn. It'd be great to have you. So I'm not going to do a normal sign off at the end of the day, uh, at the end of the episode, rather. You can just uh, connect with me on LinkedIn uh, I'm Tom Salemi at Device Talks. Connect with Chris Newmarker there as well. Chris as in a new marker. And uh, we're just going to play now the uh, the interview I did with Dave Rosa, who uh, has since been promoted. He's now president of Intuitive Surgical, but at the time he wasn't. So uh, we'll run that interview. And then I hope we'll see you at uh, Device Talks West again, October 18th and 19th at the Santa Clara Convention Center, where we're breaking. We've broken attendance records. It's going to be the biggest one ever. Uh, we blew past last year's total a long time ago. So it's going to be a great and busy couple of days. And I sincerely hope that you'll be there. Well, Dave Rosa, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Pleasure being here. I'm excited to, to learn what you're doing at at intuitive today but uh i just find your your career fascinating and the fact that you're came and joined the company so early uh, right around its founding i want to learn about your history first so what was it that drew you into uh, medtech first uh, have you always had an interest in it uh no so it's a little <laughs> bit uh, a little bit of serendipity maybe a little bit of the pinball theory of life you know i was a uh, studying mechanical engineering at cal poly and had grown up in a very blue collar family and had expected kind of, you know, trying to figure out what to do with my life. And I had accepted an internship in my junior year of college with PGE. And that's where much of my family is a power company out in California. Sure. And uh, and so I had signed up on and said, yep, I'll, I'll come and be an intern. I, I don't remember what I was going to do. And my mom at the time sent me a, there's no internet. So it sent me a little classified <laughs> ad out of a local paper here in San Jose Mercury. That was and it, it was an advertisement looking for an intern at a company called Accuson, and Accuson was a medical device ultrasound manufacturer back yeah. in the day. So I and it sounded better than PG&E, and, <laughs> and so I uh, 
I went ahead and applied for it and they accepted me. So I declined PG&E, went to Accuson, had a three month or so internship, and then they hired me back after I graduated. And so that, that was my foray into medical devices, not really knowing what it was, but then becoming very passionate about the intersection of engineering, mechanical engineering for me and, and med device and patient care and all those sorts of things. So what was it about uh, your experience at Accuson that made you want to go back after you graduated? I had a buddy or a mentor there that was just one of the most special people that I've ever met and and worked with. And he actually was one of the primary reasons I joined Intuitive because he had he, oh. he predated me, if you will, and had joined um, a guy named Tom Cooper. And so an extraordinary engineer and an extraordinary man, both, you know, so it's just those kinds of people are are just incredibly impactful. Wow. I love mentor stories. How do you act towards people who as a mentor, do you do you keep Tom Cooper's spirit in mind? I try. I think about the people who have had impact in my life, and when our we had a, a founding uh, an original CEO who then became chairman of the board for a while, and then uh, stepped off the board. And you know, we had a, a nice little celebration, unfortunately, during COVID. But during that time, I actually was thinking about the people who have influenced my life a lot, and you know, my including my dad. Tom that we talked about. I had a sixth grade teacher who uh, actually was just really special and we kept in touch until he passed away. And then uh, Lonnie, who was the CEO at the time, just incredibly impactful. So, you know, I have these mentors that I think I, I've been incredibly blessed to have. And so I try to do the same, you know, what can I impart to people? It's part of the reason I joined startup boards. It's not, not that I can bring all this, you know, great insights on technology or anything, but how do you build a company? How do you mentor people? That's great. Well, I mean, as an engineer, did you ever think that you do have insights on on running companies, building companies? I'm kind of curious as to, I want to understand a little more how you came to Intuitive, but how did the transition from engineer to executive sort of happen? Yeah, I mean, it's it's over time. And it's also a belief by, you know, I, I don't know that, you know, I'm confident in my abilities, but but I think it always takes somebody else to point out and stretch you, right? And see a little bit more than you see in the mirror, kind of, and, and say, hey, I really believe you can go do this. And, and largely, that's what happened with me, is um, I wasn't managing an Accuson. I was there for about five or six years and then moved over into Intuitive as a design engineer. And you know, we can talk about it, but I very quickly kind of moved out of, out of hardcore engineering and kind of more into what we call clinical engineering, but it's kind of the application of robotics and surgery and being sort of a connection point between surgeons and what's happening in the operating room and our engineering team, sort of a little bit of the, of the translation back and forth. Gotcha. And, and it was when I sort of transitioned there, and that's when I was asked to start kind of trying to lead a team of doing the same thing. And then it, it's built from there. So it's an, the odd opportunity when you could take a position that, that kind of gives you a broader view of the field. You can see both the outward view and the inward view. You see how yeah, it's made, right. but how it's used. That's right. That's exactly that was exactly sort of my role in the in the very very early days of the company. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, how did you come to join Intuitive? You mentioned Tom Cooper's influence earlier. Was he the one who recruited you? Well, not not so much recruited, but I think was a a, a major component of my decision. So, Rob Young. So there are there are basically three founders of Intuitive: Rob Young, Fred Moll, and John Freund. And both John and and Rob were affiliated with Accuson at the time. And so Rob was the VP of engineering in the area that I was engineering in at Accuson. And so he had left 
to join Fred and, and John and, and start Intuitive. And he then recruited, there was a guy named Bob Hager, who was kind of a, 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 a senior leader under Rob in the organization. And then Bob recruited several of us. And so there was a little small team, I think maybe five of us or so, that kind of came over together, all within the span of maybe three or four months. Of Tom was one, and a guy named Mike Aketa, who's still here, was another one, and and Bob, myself, a guy named Alex Mayers. And so it was a little team that came over. How did you view the opportunity? Was it still a medical device company in your mind, or were you moving into a different industry? How did you view Intuitive in those early days? Well, I can tell you, my wife and I differed. Um, <laughs> she, she thought I was a little bit nuts trying to do it. I, uh, you know, honestly, I, I think I was 28. I, it's not a, I didn't have any of these deep insights about what Intuitive might be in the future. I'm going to join this, you know, blockbuster company. It was one, the team that had said they were leaving in AccuSan to join Intuitive was, you know, my mind second to none. Two, Robotics sounded really interesting, right? Yeah. What, what, what better thing could you work on as a mechanical engineer? And then third was this connection to the, the healthcare field, you know, the medical device field. And so, you know, I was like, hey, what what more can you ask for? And why not take a risk? You know, why not? Why not try something? What were those early days like we had Gary Guthard at our Device Talks West meeting talking about sort of his first introduction to the intuitive technologies? And, and he talked a bit about those early days, but what were those early days as Intuitive like? And, and actually, I also wanted to ask, and now it's coming back to mind, I've talked to a lot of people at Intuitive who've been there for a very long time from the early days, it seems, more so than other companies where I've talked to. There are sometimes people who have been there their entire career, but Intuitive people, they seem to they seem to stick. Is that a fair statement? I think so. You know, yeah. I, it's hard for me, having been here so long, it's hard for me to compare it to other companies. Sure. But, but I do feel like we we do have the... The ability to retain people for a long, long time and people want to do it. And, and I think it for me, it's a combination of a couple of things. And, and it goes to for some of the reasons I joined. The people, the team here are really in my are, are extraordinary. And they're extraordinary engineers, are extraordinarily capable, they're extraordinary, you know, just people who are aligned on a mission. And it's one of the things I really appreciate about intuitive. As say, you know, as compared to other medical device companies, and everybody has their place, but very singularly focused on a set of technologies that are advancing interventions. And so, it, you know, we're not in cardiac rhythm management. We're not these other things. You know, really highly focused. And I think that too is a way in which we all speak a common language. And so, you know, you go great technology, really an aligned mission. You know, an extraordinary team around you. And also a job that's nowhere near done. Hmm. You know, so like we're just in 27 years later, we're just scratching the surface, in my opinion, on, on what uh, robotics and, and data and, and this, all these other things can bring to the world. Did you have a sense, say, 10, 20 years ago, where you might be or where intuitive yeah. might be? And are you where you thought you might be? Or, or was intuitive the concepts so new that you, I don't know where this is going, but it's great. It's a good question. You know, uh, there was a point in time where you go, wow, I think there was a real there, there, you know, there, mm -hmm. and I, I don't know when that was that I, maybe 10 years ago. I'm not, I'd have to kind of think through the timeline there in the early part of the company. We never believed, you know, we always have a vision, but not a vision of like where we are today. And, you know, Tom, the early part of the company was filled with failures and difficult times and 
you know, time we had layoffs, we were struggling to even make a device work. And so you you have a vision and, you know, Fred and Rob and others, you know, kind of driving through all those difficult times. And the one thing that I remember for me personally was uh, w- when the company was started, we as an engineering team, they basically said, can you please replicate open surgery in, in a minimally invasive approach? Mm-hmm. That was the whole idea, you know, add risk, add 3D vision, add this great motion those sorts of things. And the foundation that was created back then is more or less the same foundation as, as of today. You know, it's kind of the foundational robotic capabilities are risk, 3D vision, two motion, the things that were the same even 25 years ago. And in those early days when we got it all to work, which was kind of rare sometimes, <laughs> it was uh, it was magic. You know, you, 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 like you knew you had something that could do extraordinary things in surgery and minimally invasive surgery that couldn't be replicated with laparoscopic technique. And, uh, and so we get a little recipe and, and the, you know, the cake would taste great on that day for that 20 minutes. And then, you know, it all fall apart and you do it again, you do it again and it, and it becomes repeatable, you know? And so that's when you go, man, there is a there, there, you know? I imagine just having that taste of success, even if it's 20 minutes long, it just makes you want to get back to there again and, and, to, and to find that success again. It does. That's exciting. I, I, I'm just, I also enjoy talking with you and Gary and others, just the, when you talk about the technology and the tools, how your eyes sort of light up, like you're really still enamored with what you're, what you've been able to do and what you're, you think you're capable of doing going forward or what the Da Vinci and the other systems are. Yeah. Yes. So let's, Fast forward to today, you're executive vice president, chief strategy and growth officer. What are your duties? What what are your responsibilities there? Yeah, it's sort of, um, I would say, maybe threefold. One is, in particular, trying to see where and where's the company going from here. You know, where what are the the sort of the avenues of growth where Intuitive can continue to fulfill its mission, where the you know the technologies products that we're developing can bring value to the world. And some of them are obvious and it doesn't take a lot of input because we're on those growth curves today and all the procedures and where the technology is being applied. And then there are new areas where the systems that we're, are in development and use today can make uh, dents, you know, in some of the healthcare challenges that are out there. And then there are potential business model changes that can come along with those or modifications and tweaks that are in there. And then there are seeds that we want to plant that are further out, Mm. right? These are longer term bets and trying to address unmet needs in healthcare. And you could look all across healthcare and you and I could come up with a list going, boy, this is an area that's just not well served. And so how do we do better there? And that's where I still believe that the robotics, you know, the the precision and and access associated with them, visualization data, those sorts of things, the confluence of those things will make a big difference. And so that's one big area of focus for me. And that's kind of the growth and, and strategy side. The other part is I have um, our, our marketing team under me as well. And so that's how do we message? How do we communicate value? A lot of it, because part of it is engineering and making the device. And part of it is actually the communication and measurement of it as well to ensure mm-hmm. that you're actually doing what you say you're going to do. And we have a, if we get a chance, you know, there's a, there's a really cool set of data that has been developed internally that I think is, is just powerful and, and kind of checks the box, if you will, on the, on the impact robotics can have in the, in the world. And I'll 
I'll, if we get a chance, I'll tell you about it at a high level. But the other um, the other thing that's not necessarily in my job description, but I'm super passionate about in the role is is the culture of the company. It's a little bit about what you described in terms of why we have long-term employees. But how do we how do we retain an innovative entrepreneurial culture that's differentiated in, in the world of medical devices so that we can attract and retain the very best, but also it's noticed by our customer community mm-hmm. too. Right. And they say, yeah, intuitive is different to work with. They're insanely competent. You know, you care about the problem to be solved and, and it's about the patient and it's not about intuitive. And so that's maybe the three that I, you know, focus on on a daily basis. That's a cool job. You piqued my interest about the data, so let's let's roll into that. I'm now sure. can keep thinking about it. What's he got? What's he got? So what's the data? <laughs> <laughs> Talk a bit about that. Share that if you would. Yeah, sure. So I think uh, robotic assisted surgery is the most written about device in the peer reviewed literature. It's, I think there are over forty thousand articles now that are out there wow. published uh, around Da Vinci and its impact. And so the team here, statisticians in our in that world, our clinical team, has taken a look through that literature and put together what we call a meta-analysis. So what we can do is go in there and look for the highest level of evidence papers that exist in that sphere of 30,000 plus articles. And there's 182 that are of level, I think it's 2C and higher. So these are their own meta-analyses, randomized control trials, that sort of thing. You take those 182 and combine them in a way that's statistically relevant. And in there are about 700,000 patients in robotic surgery, 700,000 patients in laparoscopy or thoracoscopy, and about 750,000 in open surgery. Mm -hmm. And in that set of data, there are across seven cancer procedures. And so this is like partial nephrectomy, prostatectomy. We have cancer uh, hysterectomy and a few others, thoracic surgery. And it looks across outcomes that are things like readmissions, mortality, blood transfusion, length of stay, time in the OR, those kinds of things. And so I think there are seven or eight variables. And so when you do the analysis, robotic-assisted surgery is actually statistically ahead, and it has advantages in five of the seven outcomes. So it's better in mortality. It's better in blood loss. It's better in conversion rate. And it's equal on 30-day readmissions, and it's behind, if you will, on operative time. If you stand back and you say, you know, we we as a collective company have invested, I don't know how much, you know, billions, right, trying to create these products, all these people's time and everything else. You want to, is it really, you know, it doesn't matter. Does it make a difference? Mm-hmm. And I have anecdotal stories all over the place and been in a huge number of surgeries and our, and our customers believe that, but this is a set of evidence that kind of statistically says, yeah, it's making a difference, mm-hmm. you know, and that's powerful, right? And, and why the industry, why you see an industry forming, I think, around it, because we're seeing what it can do. Those are great numbers. Do you think that those numbers are recognized by in the clinical world, that they see things the same way? Because for, for a time, and I think it's less so now, but 10 years ago, you know, robotic systems where, oh, that's just something for a billboard to draw people. And then it was dismissed as being a, a, a value add in any way. But those yeah. numbers suggest otherwise. You know, Tom, it is a absolute great question. And, and you're exactly right. There was, and again, though, it's a little bit of a life cycle of almost any technology, right? Yeah. Especially in healthcare. 
there's, there's always the, you know, you, you put a, a product on the market and you get feedback and you have to improve it. And all of a sudden there starts to be data generated, at least in our, in our world. And uh, that, and it takes time, right? So you will have that early adoption phase. That is some billboards and marketing and that sort of thing and anecdotal evidence and small series from a single surgeon that says, yeah, it's making a difference. And so, you know, there's, there is a time constant to this thing that takes time for data to be developed. And if you, if you look at where we are now, I would say largely, not, not hundred percent, but largely people understand that value. And so there is enough data out there. And in particular, enough hospitals that understand their own data. So it's not looking at somebody else's data who may do it differently. One of the things I'm most proud of, of the company and of our team and where we've been focusing is having economists and our teams work very carefully and closely with hospitals who have better and better data about their own sort of uh, programs and outcomes and saying, let's analyze it. Let's analyze your data and do basically a comparison between robotic laparoscopy or man, any manual MIS in open surgery. And it's just let's look and see what's going on in terms of the outcomes you care about. And so it becomes very relevant to them. And, and that has become an increasing part of why I think robotics has become adopted and embedded in institutions. Interesting. As you were giving those numbers in my head, I'm thinking, well, a lot of that, the performance is comes from the performance of Da Vinci and your your surgical systems because you're You've been the principal provider of, I know there are others, but you've been the principal provider of surgical robotic systems up until now. We're reaching a point where other larger companies are bringing their surgical systems online in a year or two years, however soon. I guess I'm trying to ask, is, are, is there a concern that as, as more people enter the space that those numbers change? Or do you see that there's a decent amount of quality out there across the field that their surgical robotics will continue to perform as it has in, in the past? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, um, you know, I think there's a couple of ways to answer it, but one is just bringing those products to market, period, you know, through regulatory agencies, there is, the bar has been raising and changing over the years as mm -hmm. the FDA and other, other bodies kind of learn the industry of medical robotics, surgical robotics. And so things like human factors and, you know, other areas of, of testing have become part of what's expected to get on the market. So I think the bar is higher just to be on the market as compared to 25 years Interesting. ago. Interesting. Good point. You know, so that's maybe one that helps a little bit just to get started at a, you know, at a step forward than we used to be. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I do worry that it's more than a robot. And this is something that I, I do worry about is in order to produce outcomes like that, it is more than just saying, okay, I have a system that has a wrist and 3D vision, and therefore I'm going to have the same exact effect and outcomes as, as what's been happening for 25 years. And the answer is that's false, right? That The robot's a piece of the puzzle, but behind that are instruments, training, you know, the residency and fellowship programs, mm. uh, how good your vision is, how reliable the system is, right? So it isn't converting because the, uh, the system fails. I mean, the, there's an entire set of, of things to measure that go way, way beyond the, just the robot per se itself. And that, so I don't think that you can see those outcomes at scale until other companies kind of get through those cycles of learning in the beginning. That's interesting. That's a great point. So 
I wouldn't ask you to, to, to assign a piece of pie of one size to another to your success, but how big of a part is the non-technical part of Intuitive's business, the training, the, the, the residency programs, the support of the surgeons, how much of that is connected to your success compared to the actual technology itself? We did a robot that we designed to do this and it does this. Yeah, it's... It's a really important part. You know, yeah. it's hard. I don't know that I can assign a piece yeah. of pie. But it's a, <laughs> Unfair question, but. No, it's okay. But it, it's a big part of our focus and investment. You know, our chief medical officer has multiple organizations that are focused exactly on, you know, this is training science. How yep. do people learn? How do we help people get up a, a training curve more quickly? Our machine learning and AI teams are working really hard on you know, are, are there ways in which we can help people train and understand robotics and workflow and other things that aren't in the OR, right? And this is like simulation or other vehicles. And so, so the answer to your question is it's a big part. And it goes all the way down now into residency programs where, you know, today robotics is a key part, I think, of over 90% of the residency programs in urology, general surgery, GYN, right? And, and just that, in and of itself and the investments there is a big part of proliferating, you know, the the sort of what does it take to apply robotics in your practice that is a it's scalable, you know, into how do you produce and robotic surgeons, if you will, or those who are really adept at it earlier in their career, that's not going to a lab for a day and then going in the OR and trying it. You know, it's a very sophisticated pathway. Interesting. So let's let's talk a bit strategy and, and where where you're headed in the future. Where do you see your growth and opportunity, both in new technologies? We talked about with Gary Guthrie. We talked about Ion at, at Device Talks West, uh, and we've talked about it on the podcast as well. And geographic markets too. Where do you see the opportunities there? Yeah, maybe I'll start with geographic markets. You know, um, there has to be sort of a big because sometimes you get asked about, hey, can't robotics make a difference in some of the developing countries? And it may be in time, but I wouldn't say that's the first answer to help, you know, improve their health care system overall. So, you know, there's got to be, I, I would say, a foundation of a surgical, you know, a surgical foundation within the country, reimbursement, hospitals, the, you know, the post-surgical uh, care, those sorts of things. Just as a foundationally, why would you enter geography or not? You know, and, and the, many are obvious, right? It's always the same ones for around the world, the U.S., Europe parts of Asia, that kind of thing are always the, the big ones. But there are emerging, you know, there are some markets out there where the government has actually said, look, we think robotics is important to help take care of our constituents. And so we're actually going to try to incent it by changing reimbursement for robotics. And that, you know, increasingly, that's another piece of the puzzle that says, hey, there's evidence to support that outcomes are are improved via versus other modalities. So how do we, how do we help bring it along? All right. And we either go direct in markets or we work through distributors, you know, that however we decide to do it, then our job is just to say, okay, where and how can robotics make a difference in healthcare? There has to just be a foundation and enough volume to support a good program. The last thing you need is a robotic system in an account that's rarely used, right? Because that's not good for anyone. And so you know, there's no science behind the geographic expansion. And, and within each geography, men you see a very kind of classic set of adoptions. You start with generally with urology or some other cancer operations that are typically done open. And then those can convert to a minimally invasive approach, a lot of value there. And then they start those kind of core procedures, foundational procedures, 
you know, surgeons will start adding on other ones to those. And then care teams and scale become, you know, kind of part of the story and they get used to it. And then they start adding procedures onto that. And it's just a very classic set of adoption curves as we talk about it. On the technology side, I would say there are probably maybe two areas that I, because there's a lot, Tom, so I could talk forever. Maybe two areas that that I think about a lot and that I'm really excited about. So I don't think in order to improve surgery and take it from where kind of we are today, that you need a better grasper or a wrist that bends a little bit more. That That's not the core of what's going to take outcomes forward. I'm not so excited about saying, hey, guess what, Tom, we're going to produce a seven millimeter wrist versus an eight millimeter wrist. What I get really excited about is how can we help surgeons see more about what they're doing? And so if you, when you watch surgery, you watch, quote, an experienced, really good surgeon versus someone who's not so experienced and, quote, not so good. It's not that one can manipulate the, the instrument better than the other. They're both very technically competent, typically has a lot more to do about tissue planes and the subtleties of where bleeding might occur and where it won't occur. You know, where is something that really matters, like a ureter or nerves or something else? You know, it's the knowledge of the anatomy. And so, how do we help that? How do we help expedite that and make it so that you don't need a thousand cases to learn that sort of anatomical variation? And so fluorescence guided surgery is a big piece of this puzzle where you can inject a fluorescing marker into the body and using infrared lasers in the system, it lights up and it, it looks, uh, it, it's pretty amazing. And so we have a, a molecule in development that's specific to prostate cancer, for example. And you know, you can turn on, inject the drug, turn on the on the infrared laser and see the prostate cancer. And if the surgeon has resected the prostate, but happens to leave some behind, they can go back out and, and resect that and work for a negative margin. So, and that's not possible in white light imaging. So, hmm. I get, you know, and there's other things, hyperspectral, all these other modalities that are out there that can help the surgeon sort of un better understand what he or she is looking at in the field. And it could be cancer, nerves, you know, vasculature, ureter, whatever it may be. And that, that to me is sort of a, a huge piece of the puzzle going forward that I'm, I'm really excited about. Probably the other one, for me at least, is thinking about focal therapy. So today for cancer in particular, it's kind of a bit, many big operations. You take out a prostate, right? You take out chunk of a, a part of a liver, you take out part of the stomach or whatever it may be. A section of the colon. And as work is being done outside of intuitive for liquid biopsy, better imaging, you know, you see that cancer might become earlier, detected earlier, right? When it's smaller and not symptomatic. And so if that's true and you go, okay, buy that as a thesis. And I think that's, I don't think we'd argue that it should be possible to treat it earlier too, if we can localize and everything else. And this is again, where I believe that the things that robotics does well, precision, access, think about ion, right, in the lung. You can get up into multiple generations of the lung, find a small lesion. Mm -hmm. Today, it's doing a biopsy, but there was a lot of work being done and how to ablate it locally, right? And so you can apply that, I think, in multiple areas of the body. And so there's that kind of general trend of science, and this is a whole bunch of people working in the area of uh, just trying to detect cancer earlier that I think we'll be able to treat it earlier too. And I'm, I'm excited about that. 
And uh, just quickly about the molecules, the contrast agents or sure. whatever help. That is an internal program. That's something internal to intuitive. And does how big of a part of your business do you see that becoming? Because it would seem to be a completely different type of business than surgical robotics. Yeah. Or is so it? maybe it's not. You know, we have a lot of things where you go, it feels a little bit different, but it's part of that ecosystem we're talking yeah. about. Okay. So so today, if you were to take an example of uh, one of one of the areas where we're getting traction is for cholecystectomy, you know, taking a gallbladder out. Mm-hmm. And you might go, oh, that's, I wonder why, because it's well penetrated with laparoscopy today. And so why is it adopting on the robot? Isn't, isn't, do you really need it? And part of the, one of the main reasons is, is because for, for fluorescent imaging, we call it Firefly, it's available and used very, more than half the time. I think it's over 60% now where surgeons are using Firefly just to confirm they understand the anatomy. So now they can go in, in every case, every patient confident that they'll finish it minimally invasive. So they have great imaging and they have great tools to do even a very difficult gallbladder that may have very difficult anatomy. Whereas before they might go in and and get it done sometimes and not others and have to convert to open. And now it's just, you know, it's kind of commonplace. I'm going to do it. I may not have needed it per se, but it's there and I I know I'm going to finish it. Interesting. Final question, kind of, I guess, a twofer in that we talked about early on, what did you think intuitive would become at, at this point or where it would be today? I'm curious, looking forward, just maybe 10 years, what do you see intuitive becoming? What kind of company does it look like? And and where does it fit into the landscape of other companies who will be selling surgical robotics in the space? Yeah, it's a good question, Tom. We talked briefly before about how we're uh, our mission is very focused, very singular on creating technology that in surgeons' hands just really make a difference. And I don't see that changing. Mm-hmm. And so minimally invasive care, you know, if you were to look for 10 years, the company will have been larger and we will be addressing more disease states, right? With but it will be with like sort of the, the foundational kind of technology that we talk about, which is, you know, robotics, imaging, trying to access anatomy in a, always in a less invasive manner. And so I I expect to be one of the, you know, preeminent medical device companies out there and with class leading technology that, you know, we continue to just innovate on a daily basis, kind of our core DNA that will have moved for the measures that you should care about outcomes, cost, and the experience of the patient that, you know, today, those are substantively better than they are today. Just a quick follow-up. Carrie made that point at the conversation we had at Device Talks West. Looking at the competitive landscape, he described intuitive as fitting in and sort of going up against or other medical device companies. Those were his primary concern. You just said that intuitive is a medical device company. When did intuitive in your mind become a medical device company or is it becoming a medical device company? Or has it always been a medical device company? You know, I I think that's more, you know, I've used it forever. I've always thought about it as a medical device company. Never thought about it as a robotic company or anything else. Interesting. Medical device company. But actually, I would argue, and in some ways would say it's a minimally invasive care company. Because it goes beyond the device, right? You could expand that term. But think about all the digital aspects of what's happening. The integration of data, how we might use data. You know, that isn't necessarily the traditional a definition of a device company, right? That's you're usually selling some piece of hardware that has to go get sterilized. And there, so I have a minimally invasive care company that looks across a spectrum of advanced technologies 
and can integrate those up in a way that's just going to make a difference. Right. That, that to me is more about minimally invasive care. Excellent. Well, I really uh, enjoyed this conversation and uh, thanks for, for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate what you do for us. All right, I lied. I couldn't just end it without saying goodbye. So I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dave Rosa. If you want to hear more from him, of course, join us at Device Talks West on October 18th and 19th. Coming up in Santa Clara, uh, register with the code DTW25 to save 25%. Connect with me on LinkedIn. We'll get you there. Go to devicetalks.com for more information or west.devicetalks.com if you want to skip a step. So that's it, folks. Sincerely, it's going to be a great couple of days. Hope you're there. Say hello when you come. Take care, everybody. Yeah.